Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. There were few things better than having a substitute teacher in school. I'm not sure how it was for others, but when I was growing up and had a teacher who was out sick, a substitute would wheel in this ancient TV and we'd watch a movie or a documentary. It was awesome. And it was during one of those substitute teacher days that I saw Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, based on his eponymous book, which features a great history of weapons, from the bow and arrow, to the steel sword, to the musket, and then finally to the Maxim gun, the world's first fully automatic weapon which European colonial forces used to devastating effect across the globe. That documentary taught me two things. First, as with all technology, the time horizon between each evolution in warfare narrows. Progress is exponential. And the second thing that 12-year-old Ethan learned watching that documentary is that humans have this amazing ability of applying the technology of a given moment to the battlefield. It's among our most impressive creative faculties. You have a stone tool, make an arrow out of it. You just learned how to melt and mold metal, make a sword, gunpowder, make a gun, just discovered the atom, learn how to put it in a bomb and split it. But now we have computers and increasingly we have AI. What might those technologies mean for the future of combat? Not many people on Earth are thinking about that question more deeply than Mick Ryan. He is a retired Major General in the Australian Army, a non-resident fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and an author whose new book, White Sun War, explores the technologies that might emerge in a war between the US and China. And you already know this, but best of all, he joins me next. Hi, General. Thanks for joining me. No worries, Ethan. It's great to be with you. So, first of all, congrats on this book. Uh, it was not only predictably insightful, but it was fun, often funny, and engaging in a way that a lot of nonfiction isn't. And I know that was by design. Yeah, I mean, it's my first real attempt at fiction, so I'm sure there's lots of things I've got to learn. I, I guarantee there are, and uh, I guess I'll improve as... I go on with with other books, but you know it was designed to be more engaging than nonfiction books are, uh, with uh, academic language and, and footnotes and stuff. And as Peter Singer says, you know it's a bit like blending up vegetable in your kid's milkshake when you use narratives. It's it's a good way to learn, whilst hopefully making it accessible and somewhat enjoyable at the same time. And you had the luxury of avoiding some of those pesky footnotes. <laughs> well, that's right, but it, I didn't have the luxury of avoiding all the research that goes with it. Um, right. You can't write a of book course. like this without a huge amount of research. And some of that was from my previous book, but a lot of it you know, was specific for this book, and that, that took a lot of time. In a lot of ways, the book is, it seems to me, trying to apply some of the lessons from the Russo-Ukraine war to a potential future conflict over Taiwan. But but General, is the Russo-Ukraine war still happening in your book? It seems like you may have left that uh, intentionally ambiguous. Yeah, there's a few things I've left intentionally ambiguous in the book for various reasons, whether it's to leave open storylines or, or just because you can't actually predict what's going to happen between 2023 and, and when the book takes place, which is 2028. Um, so... I'll leave that to the imagination of the reader, but certainly throughout the book, it does talk about the Taiwanese and the Americans having learnt from the Ukrainians. And indeed, at one point of the book, a group of Ukrainians have visited Taiwan to, 
you know, pass on the lessons from the uh, Russo-Ukraine war. How does the Russo-Ukraine war end in the universe of, of White Sun War? Are we going to... Is there a definitive answer or...? Um, well, in the mind of Mick Ryan, Ukraine wins. Okay. And I think that will be the reality as well. Very good. Very good. Well, we can come back to that and, and just figure out exactly how they would win that war. But I want to first figure out how a war over Taiwan would be different from the war in, in Ukraine. And you you focus a lot on these five arenas, land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace. Of those five, which have been most important during the war in Ukraine? Um, I think the two most important ones are land, just because this is mainly a, a land conflict and support comes into Ukraine across the land. Um, it is proximate to countries that are giving it a lot of support, not just Poland next door, which has been an amazing supporter of Ukraine, but, you know, Germany and, and other countries that are able to ship things by train, by uh, truck and, and other means into Ukraine reasonably quickly. So I think that's probably been the most important domain in this war, but I think the other one is the information domain. I mean, we have seen a campaign of strategic influence from both Ukraine and Russia um, in ways that we haven't seen for a very long time before, probably since the Second World War. Um, and that's had varying degrees of success for both of them. For Russia, they haven't really focused on us. They've been focusing on the global south and China and, and other countries. And whilst it hasn't resulted in a lot of military support, it has resulted in nearly two-thirds of the world's countries not participating in the sanctions regime that's been put together by Europe and the United States. But, of course, the real model has been the Ukrainian uh, strategic influence campaign led, of course, by President Zelensky. Um, and this has both formal parts. You know, there's the government-fostered uh, strategic influence campaign uh, through him, through social media, through speeches, through uh, multilateral meetings and things like this. And then there's the informal part where you have a grassroots movement, both within Ukraine, but more broadly, um, to support Ukrainian narratives and to address Russian misinformation and disinformation campaigns. And, you know, the hashtag NAFO movement is probably one of the best examples of this, uh, where they go out and do what they call bonking Vutniks, which is to address misinformation online. Leaving space aside, because I think Ukraine has been largely able to rely on Western and private space assets. Have you been surprised by Ukraine's ability to prevent Russian domination over the sea, the air and in cyberspace? Um, not necessarily. Um because they've had since 2014 to prepare. And if you dig back a few years, you can see since the 2014 invasion by the Russians in the Donbass and Crimea, the Ukrainians actually been working pretty hard at this. Um, they've been working at it from a, a force structure size to reconfigure their military to better combat uh, a Russian invasion. Uh, they've been working at it from a technological side of things. They've developed a whole lot of technologies. Um, you know, they've put together about 65 different companies in a Ukrainian defence tech, uh, not a conglomeration, but I guess a, a collaboration project. Uh, they've been working to better align their doctrine and training and structures and command approaches to NATO rather than 
old Soviet approaches. But also the Ukrainians have had the benefit of knowing exactly who their enemy is. They've known the whole time exactly what the number one and probably only threat to their country is. And they've been able to focus on getting ready for that. I think the reason why many people were surprised about what's happened in this war is because um, the, everyone looked at the Russians, but no one was really looking at the Ukrainians. The world didn't really know them until they stood up on the 22nd of February, but we all know them now. Have we seen the same level of technological advancement that we've seen past wars during the Ukraine conflict? Uh, yes, but it's different kinds of weapons. You know, we've seen the Ukrainians in the maritime environment shoe uh, symmetrical approaches to the Russian Black Sea fleet and adopt indirect approaches. You know, they've developed at least three kinds of uncrewed surface vessel, um, one surface, one semi-submersible, one submersible, to, if not to attack the Russian Black Sea fleet, at least to restrict its movements so ships can't get out and launch the missiles, which cause so much havoc in Ukraine. We've also seen the evolution of the digital command systems that link sensors with shooters to drastically reduce what I call the detection to destruction time on the battlefield down to around a minute, uh, which is which has pretty profound implications for tactics, for mobility, for command and control, dispersion, these kind of things. Um, we've also seen, I think, leap ahead in autonomous systems and, importantly, counter-autonomy. Um, in autonomous systems, we've seen a massive proliferation of commercial and military drones for surveillance, uh, but also being fitted to drop munitions and then also their transition to loitering munitions, uh, you know, the switchblades and, and lancets and, and these kind of things. But on the other side, we've seen a rapid uh, catch-up in counter-drone technology, which has really been a lagging technology over the last 20 years as we've leapt ahead in UAVs. We haven't had the same level of progress in countering them, and the Russians and Ukrainians have adopted a whole range of electronic as well as physical measures to protect themselves against surveillance as well as loitering munitions and these kind of things. So, you know, the, the technologies we've seen leap ahead are not the ones that, say, leapt ahead uh, during World War II and, and other wars we've seen, but there has been advancements and adaptation nonetheless. And with time, I'm sure we see more and more. Moving ahead to a potential war in Taiwan and getting back to your book, of those five arenas, which would be most important in Taiwan? Um, I think you'll see all five of them co-equal. It's hard to pick one that is the most important. There's a lot of people say, well, it's clearly a maritime fight or it's clearly an aerial fight. And both of those answers are correct. Um, but at the end of the day, China actually has to take the green bit, which is the <laughs> island of Taiwan, you know. So the land also matters because that's where the people are, that's where the government exists. And, you know, you, the space domain is vital uh, for, you know, early warning. It's vital for precision navigation and timing, for imagery, for a whole range of functions. And, of course, cyber has been vital in Ukraine and it will be in Taiwan, uh, just to keep the people and the government connected, keep Taiwan connected with the world and in a military sense for digital battle command and control systems. But I think the domain 
and I don't see it as a domain, but it's just how people describe it now, that connects it all is the human domain. That is the most important domain of all of these because as we've seen in Ukraine and as the Taiwanese told me when I was there just a couple of weeks ago, the number one lesson from the war in Ukraine is you have to help yourself before others will come and help you. You have to demonstrate the national uh, and individual will of the people to protect yourself before others will commit to doing so. And I, so I think that really is the predominant uh, domain if we want to use that term mm. in any conflict over Taiwan. It's going to be the will of the people. Well, so then knowing that it will be a holistic war, what do you make of the decision, for example, by the US Marine Corps recently to abandon its entire tank arsenal in favor of greater amphibious capability. I mean, is there, you said it, is there an over-indexing on the importance of air and sea operations in Taiwan? Well, the, the, the Marines are very lucky. They have the luxury of having the US Army. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, if they do get it wrong, and I'm not saying they will, um, but, you know, if they were to get it wrong, you still have the US Army, which has thousands of the latest M1, of M2 and M3 Bradley variants of of artillery. Uh, it has the US Army and the US Navy's vast communications, medical, logistics network that extends throughout the Pacific. So, you know, the Marines are in the fortunate position that uh, like small armies like mine is not, that it, it does have a strategic uh, risk mitigation uh, method, and that's called the US Army, the US Navy, US Air Force. We shouldn't forget, too, that remember the, the US Marine Corps has its own Air Force. It has uh, three Marine Air Wings, which are very, very capable, not just with rotary wing, but with fixed wing aircraft. Um, so, you know, a few less tanks might uh, be problematic with some traditionalists, but all. But, you know, they, they can mitigate that with their own capabilities and other services. I will say, however, uh, just one final thing when it comes to amphibiosity. If you have a look at the US Marines in 1942 with what it was doing in its initial landings and then in 1945 in what it was doing in its landings, there's a big difference in what it looks like. There's a lot more mechanisation and there's a lot more armour uh, coming ashore with the Marines. So I, I, I hope they haven't eschewed those lessons that even in the Pacific you need armour and tanks. Uh, but I guess we'll see what happens with these Marine littoral regiments. Not a terrible thing to have the entire weight of the US Army on speed dial. I wish I had that. It's it's a, it's an amazing organisation. I had the privilege of working with it in Baghdad and uh, you know they're very capable but also very clever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's talk about uh, that the, the green bit. Um, what sort of advantage would China have in a war over Taiwan, considering the more favorable, you know, we can talk about geography, but I really want to talk about topography, that the island's west coast where a Chinese amphibious assault would presumably take place is flat. And the Taiwan's east coast where an American amphibious assault would take place is mountainous and rugged. What, what sort of advantage would that give China? Well... There's actually not a lot of landing beaches that either side can use. I think there's about 13 decent uh, places where you can lodge uh, a reasonably sized amphibious force. Um, and even though, you know, as you point out, you know, Western Taiwan is flat and Eastern Ukraine is very mountainous with dozens of peaks over 3,000 metres, 
Um, you've got to remember that Western Plain isn't empty. Firstly, it's crisscrossed with rivers, and secondly, it's full of urban uh, development, uh, which is not an easy thing to uh, move through, fight through, or or exist in for a military organisation. So both kinds of topography present uh, certain kinds of challenges for military forces. And, and we shouldn't forget, you know, there's 180 kilometres of ocean between China and Taiwan, and that is a very significant obstacle. I mean, I think the uh, you know the English Channel was about uh, thirty miles, if if that, and that took years to prepare for, and thousands thousands of amphibious vessels to to leap across. So you know, there's still a geographic challenge for the Chinese, and it's a very very significant maths problem and logistics problem, let alone a shipping challenge for them. Yeah, and and you point out urban warfare would come into play in Taiwan, of course, notable that the biggest battles of the Ukraine war have taken place in urban environments. General, one thing that really jumped out to me, the events in White Sun War, from the start of the war to the end, only take place over the course of three months. Is that an issue of geography too? I mean, that there isn't enough room on the island for a long, drawn-out attritional war like we're seeing in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty small place. It's not a large battle space. Um, but also, you know, part of that is the pace of modern warfare. Once you do get moving, you can move a long way quickly. Um, but, you know, it, it you know it does bog down at times. Um, but I guess it was also part of trying to tell a story in an appreciable amount of time. Um you know, that's one scenario. There's multiple scenarios that you might imagine that could see this go on for much, much longer, you know, be a forever war. But, you know, I, the scenario I chose was a shorter one, not that it's a short war by any means. Four months uh, for what's happened um, is still a long time if you're in the middle of it. But, you know, things like topography but also weather play a role in um, how long this war goes. We will certainly come back to weather. Uh Another thing that jumped out to me is how much smaller war has gotten. You know, there, there was once a time uh, when you needed hundreds of soldiers standing in a line firing volleys of musket balls to win a battle. In the future, one soldier or an insurgent with good training using robots or other autonomous systems could change the course of a battle. What, what does that mean for the future of warfare if manpower becomes less determinative? I think manpower is still going to be uh, determinative uh, during war. I mean, what what we're seeing is part of a long-term trend which began with the first Industrial Revolution where the ability of military institutions to mass-produce high-quality weapons and then mass-produce all the supplies... Uh, to keep that going over a longer period of time meant that the lethality of military organisations went up. And generally, uh, the response to increased lethality has been increased dispersion. That's been, you can track that trend over a couple hundred years. Indeed, Trevor Dupuy's book on the evolution of warfare does that over about a 200-year period. And I think we're seeing that is we're seeing... Uh, a continuing increase in the lethality of military systems, you know, whether it's due to mesh sensor systems uh, and uh, closing that uh, detection to destruction gap. 
Um, so, you know, you're seeing one person have more impact just because of the dispersion on, on the battle space uh, in both sides. But clearly technology and the reach of an individual soldier is is important. I mean, if I, you know, uh, a few few years ago, the Australian Army introduced its latest version of the Steyr personal weapon, and I, I remember um, converting to it um, and getting down without even zeroing it, uh, putting all 30 rounds into a target at 600 metres. Now, that's not the traditional range we teach soldiers to shoot at, right? It's 100 to 300 is normal battle shooting and combat shooting. So, you know, even individual soldiers, their personal weapons uh, have much better range, much better accuracy, much better lethality. And if you extend that out to uh, loitering munitions that each soldier can carry, uh, their access to information, you know, the Ukrainians use the Delta um, command and control system that everyone has access to on a range of means, you're seeing individual lethality continue to increase and both sides are going to have to respond to that. And part of the response is the use of autonomous weapons to kind of have a gap between humans and combat because at some point the pace of tactical operations in certain scenarios might be beyond the comprehension of humans. But you you are a proponent of the theory that humans will never disappear from the battlefield, right? That we'll never, there, there will never be a war that's fought purely between machines. Correct. Um, I, I just modify that slightly in saying humans will never disappear from war. Mm. You may have small battles where it is purely between autonomous systems, and we already see that, right? I mean, if you have a look at the skies over Kiev at the moment, you have air defence missiles engaging in close combat with incoming Russian missiles. That's a variation of that, an early one. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still going to be humans, whether it's uh, battalion commanders, whether it's commander of Indo-PACOM sitting in Hawaii, or whether it's a president and cabinet making policies and strategic decisions about, well, that's not going to be replaced. It might be assisted by technology and, and AI and things like that. But at the end of the day, it'll be humans who will make the decision to go to war. It will be humans that will make the major decisions. And at the end of the day, it will be humans that will set the conditions and agree to or not war termination. I want to come back to, to that point. But but first, General, why, why don't the belligerents use nuclear weapons in White Sun War? Um, it's a, it would be a short book. It would be a short book, yeah. I mean, it, you had to, I had to make a few choices around what I wanted to write about. And, and at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I had a look at the history of military fiction and, and one of the great books is World War III um, that was published by Sir John Hackett in the early 1980s. Uh, it had a scenario where, you know, a single... Uh, nuclear weapon on a Russian city and a British city kind of brought the conflict to an end. Now, there's two troubling aspects with that. Firstly, he had a lot of criticism to because he was accused of saying a nuclear war is capable of being won, which I think actually is questionable. But I actually think that defies logic. I mean, if someone nuked Philadelphia, do you think the US government go, eh, no, let's let's all just take a breath, everyone. Um, that That's inconceivable. Let's go back to September 11, 2001. I lived on Marine Corps base then. The emotions of the people get engaged, the emotions of politicians get engaged, and things, you know, take a very, very different turn. 
So my, my thought was as soon as you started nuclear weapons, it could get out of control and it would be over quickly. And um, I think that is a separate story um, that could be told elsewhere. I'll reserve my, my personal feelings about the city of Philadelphia. But, <laughs> but General, the, the, <laughs> the, the war term, I mean, you're, you're describing a, a scenario where both sides are capable of responding to a nuclear assault mm-hmm. with a nuclear assault of their own. Yep. But the war turns in Whiteson War, and I won't say for whom or how, on this daring cybersecurity operation to manipulate weather data. Could something as ambitious feasibly be achieved to manipulate nuclear command and control, either the systems that detect an adversary's nuclear launch or the systems a country might use to launch its own nuclear weapons? Could those systems be manipulated uh, in a future war to such a degree that mutually assured destruction no longer holds? Uh, absolutely, that's possible. I mean, ever since, you know, the Manhattan Project, countries have been capable of big, sophisticated programs. But you'd have to be careful in that. If a country had a sense that it was losing control of its nuclear arsenal, how might it react? It might react in a way we can't foresee. It might decide to use it before it loses it. Um, and that's extreme, but you can't take that off the table. So you've got to be very careful. Um, you know, nuclear escalation is, you know, has been subject to decades, decades of inquiry and, and paper writing and policy writing and things like that. Uh, but the reality is we really just don't know what would happen once one side des- decides to use them because it gets back to Clausewitz, you know, the will of the people and emotion gets involved and things can get unpredictable very, very quickly. Um, my, my sense is we actually don't want to find out. Uh, let's actually uh, ensure that we never have to use these things because it is, it is a weapon that is capable of ending uh, all human civilization. And, you know, I think we've come too far as a species to, you know, quickly end ourselves over something that's it's probably not worth uh, fighting over. So, you know, I, I think the nuclear issue is a very important one to discuss. Um, but we've also seen examples of superpowers with nuclear weapons losing wars in the last 50 years and not resorting to them, whether it was um, the US in Vietnam or Afghanistan, Russia in Afghanistan, or even Israel in 1973. I mean, they may have thought about it, they might have come close, but ultimately they decided the price was not worth it. And that's kind of the uh, calculus that Putin has gone through. He would have to assure himself that using nuclear weapons would decisively change the trajectory of the war in his favour. And there's no scenario with the use of nuclear weapons where you can do that unless you totally destroy all of Ukraine. And that's even Putin, I think, isn't up for that because his narrative is Ukrainians are really Russians. So why would he want to destroy part of his own, you know, his own country using his logic? I don't agree with it, but, you know, um, so, you know, I think you, you can't take consideration off the table, but I think their use in the current conflict is unlikely and we need to make sure it becomes less and less likely as we go on. You you spoke earlier about uh, the continuity in the command and control system where humans still operate at the top of that hierarchy. Should we be concerned that nuclear command and control systems are being increasingly automated to shorten response times? Yeah, I, that does concern me. Um, you know, I think we're seeing AI develop now in a way 
that we really need to think about regulation. Um, you know, at the end of the day, AI has no rights. It doesn't have human rights. It doesn't have a right to exist. Uh, only humans do. And therefore, we need to ensure that it is safe for humans in all uses. And that includes um, if it's going to be inserted into any of the networks uh, that humans use to verify the availability or command the use of nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction. Today's show is sponsored by Babbel. Going on vacation is great, but exploring the world like a local is even better. And not speaking the language is no longer an excuse. Babbel offers 10-minute lessons designed by real language experts focused on conversational skills in 14 languages so you can learn a language in three weeks and board your next flight abroad with confidence. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. You, you, you spoke earlier a second ago. Uh, another reason why Russia or China might not use nuclear weapons is that they're a terrible way to win the type of war that Russia and China would be fighting, uh, which is designed to convince the local population to become Russian or become Chinese, to win hearts and minds. And you have this great moment in the book where a Chinese soldier ponders this question in a really profound way. And wonders how the local population will respond to being conquered by robots. Uh, what do you think about that? What, what were you trying to say about the future of conquest? Oh, there's a few things I wanted to say with that. Firstly, uh, without mirror, mirror imaging how we think on uh, the PLA, you know, I did want to say, hey, they're still humans. You know, <laughs> regardless of the doctrine of the Chinese Communist Party or a more centralised approach to command and control, they're still human beings. They still have these kind of thoughts and and we shouldn't arbitrarily uh, overlook that. Um, but, but secondly, you know, you have a Chinese commander looking at the Taiwanese people going, well, they're not like us, but they're still Chinese people. They're still human beings. Um, you know, how would I th feel about hordes of robotic systems kind of taking charge of my local neighbourhood. Which you, you call in the book Beatles. The Beatles. I'm surprised you didn't get a, a cease and desist from Volkswagen for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I spelt it differently. Um, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and Beatles have been around longer before there were cars or British rock bands, fortunately. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was to kind of have this ethical uh, moment where you go, well, is this the way we want to go with warfare? Is this the way we want to go with human communities in this proliferation of uh, mechanical beings that aren't human, don't have the same kind of intelligence we have, but they have a form of intelligence that mimics some parts of human cognition? And, you know, what, what are the implications of that, not just for military institutions, but for societies more broadly? The Whitestone War starts as a mistake, right? I mean, or at least a miscalculation. Uh, the, the Chinese president's top advisor uses a, an AI-generated war game and predicts a 95% chance that China could seize Taiwan in under, in under a month. Again, not, no spoilers here. But, but what lessons there, first on China's political system, and second, what we risk by over-relying on AI to tell us whether 
wars mm. will be won. I mean, this was a deliberate uh, insert. It was less about the AI. It was more about um, human miscalculation in going to war. Most wars start with miscalculation. I mean, if you have a look at World War One, you know, the von Schlieffen plan, they thought they could, you know, conduct this massive movement and the war would be over quickly. You know, in World War Two, Blitzkrieg was supposed to, and, you know, the Japanese thrust into Southeast Asia and the Central Pacific, the war would be over quickly. Um, every generation flirts with this idea, you know, in the interwar period, it was the bomber will get through. And you've seen this through effects-based operations and some of the more ludicrous shock and awe kind of doctrines we've seen in the last 20 years. You know, it's a notion that politicians flirt with because short wars are good wars in their book. Uh, but the reality is when you have two large, wealthy um, populous nation, both determined to get their way. Short wars just aren't possible. And part of this was to say, you know, um, we do make mistakes as humans, even when we're supported by AI. And it's always worth just taking a breath, looking at the data and thinking, well, maybe not today, let's think about it for another day. And um, that would have been a good thing for the Chinese uh, president to do in this situation, but he uh, he elected not to look in the mirror and say not today. And, and as you point out, General, uh, this war isn't definitive. You call it the first Taiwan war. Could a war over Taiwan ever really be definitive? Oh, I think you, there's always a possibility of wars being definitive, but also, you know, once again, go back, read your Clausewitz, uh, you know, book one, no war is ever truly over. And You're giving me too much homework, General. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you have a look at the Ukraine war, even if, uh, even if, sorry, even when Ukraine beats Russia in this war, Russia's still next door. It will be a big, embittered, brutalized, and humiliated society. It's still a threat they'll have to deal with, and it's probably would probably be the same even if uh, Taiwan did defeat uh, the PLA in any kind of. A war like this, you know, you can't tow Taiwan off into the middle of the Pacific Ocean to decrease a threat. China is still there. It will still be some form of threat to Taiwan and its neighbours as it is at the moment. So, you know, um, yes, I do call it the first Taiwan war. I think, you know, I'd say to people who read the book, read the introduction really, really carefully. Okay, it's not the current Mick Ryan speaking. It's a future Mick Ryan speaking. Um, and I think a lot of people have, you know, uh, skimmed over the introduction where there's a, there's a whole lot of world-building information in there, including the location of where the introduction was written, uh, that people should pay attention to. General, I, I mean this with the utmost respect. Uh, you are the sort of person that I want to hear less of going forward. <laughs> you know when you're talking to General Mick Ryan that something has gone wrong. So what do Taiwan's allies need to do to bring down that 95% confidence that the, the Chinese president's advisor had? What, what technologies does Taiwan need to prevent the White Sun War? Yeah, I think that's a backhanded compliment. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, this is this is a deterrence problem, right? Um, you know, and, and you know, I've studied Taiwan for a while now. Um, looked at its overall defence concept for some years. Spoke to the author when I was there recently. I think the idea has been reborn in Taiwan to make themselves as prickly a target in both the physical, political, and information 
respects as they possibly can, but also ensure that they have friends who are willing to help them. I mean, this is something that really differentiates Ukraine and Taiwan. Ukraine has a voice in every major multilateral and institutional event uh, and meeting, whether it's the UN or major conferences or G7, they have a voice in all those things. Taiwan has none of that. It has no access to any of those things and it makes uh, partnership building very, very difficult for them. That said, uh, it's still in the national interest of a lot of regional countries to help Taiwan because it's not in our interest for China to own that bit of territory or to be seen as someone who can just arbitrarily extinguish young democracies. Um, so, you know, Taiwan have a much, much harder uh, problem here in building a deterrence framework and alliance like Ukraine has built. And it's hard for Ukraine, even with all that access. So countries in the region are going to have to step up, whether it's the Philippines, um, whether it's Australia. I mean, Japan certainly has with doubling the percentage of GDP spent on defence in its December announcements in 2022. And, you know, I think the US has really done a lot of work in the last couple of years uh, with the government of Taiwan and its military to step up its capacity to be a very difficult target for the People's Liberation Army. And Taiwan lacks, at least for now, a figure like Zelensky, who you've described as sort of this once-in-a-generation once leader. Mm. Yeah, we shouldn't forget that Ukraine lacked a Zelensky until the war started. You know, um, President Zelensky, who came into power in 2019, um wasn't doing that well. You know, his first few initiatives to the Ukrainian parliament were knocked back. His approval rating as late as November 21 was very, it was in the 20s. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's, it takes an event for people to really discover what drives them and for a country to discover what's really important to them. And I think there's many who, you know, has have postulated that, you know, the Russians have created a modern, unified um, Ukraine in a way that was not possible through any other means, even though they voted for independence in 1991. You could see the same happen in Taiwan. At the same time, the Chinese will be watching that and they'll want to make sure another Zelensky doesn't arise in Taiwan. So, you know, hopefully the Taiwanese have lots of plans to protect their president and, and key strategic decision makers. General, last question. Uh, I think what White Sun War does so well is show the way that war largely stays the same, even as it changes more quickly than we can possibly keep up with. It's still bloody. It's still tragic. It still requires, as we've said, human participation. And you point out in the book one thing that hasn't changed, are MREs, the meals ready to eat that, that soldiers still rely on. Could we see a breakthrough on that front anytime soon, General? Um, I'd like to think so. I, I never thought MREs were that bad. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're hungry and you've got to eat, you eat. And, uh, you know, for, for most soldiers, uh, it's fuel. It, it's nice if it tastes good. I mean, that's always a good morale bump. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but also if you need to have these things in their tens of millions and stored away for a while, there's, there's only so much that food technology can do, uh, as, as you know. So, you know, I'd like to see advances. I'm sure we would. But if you were to have a look at an MRE now and have a look at what uh, soldiers were eating 50 years ago, I think we'd both agree that we've come a long way. 
but that doesn't mean we shouldn't commit to uh, continuous improvement in improving the, the food that our soldiers receive. Well, General, thank you so much for your time. I, I hope we never have to do it again. <laughs> well, I'm happy to talk again. I just hope we don't ever see uh, the scenario that's that's described in the book eventually. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, mate. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for tuning in. One thing I was left thinking about after my conversation with General Ryan is that since the beginning of time, war has only been fought with the consent of the participating societies. Government propaganda can help partially manufacture that consent. Repression and coercion can help manufacture it further. But if the costs inflicted on a society become too high, if too many people are dying, then eventually citizens push back and the war becomes unfightable. This is especially true in democracies, of course, but it's true in autocracies too. What I find most worrying about robots fighting our wars, and I know it's still a ways off, is that a wealthy country could feasibly attack its less wealthy neighbor using technology to limit casualties among its own soldiers and decrease the social costs so much that for citizens of the wealthy country, the war seems to vanish and consent is given freely and without much care. I think that makes the world a much more dangerous place. This is one of those topics that I'm sure people have a lot to say about, so please tweet at us at intrigue, tweet at me at EthanPlotkin underscore, or send me an email at Ethan at internationalintrigue.io. And if you liked this show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday. (laughs) 